Good afternoon. It's Monday the 31st of August 2020, just after one, well, it's three minutes after one o'clock now. Apologies for the slight technical delay there. Uh, welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and also joining us today, David Scott from Northern Exposure. So, uh, well, we're going to get straight on because we've got a lot to get through today and we're going to start uh, we're going to start with this AstraZeneca. And the question, if you remember, from before the summer break was, who needs approval? Uh, and this, because, this came about because of this question came about because Matt Hancock had announced, uh, Patrick, that, uh, uh, that you know, AstraZeneca had been given the go-ahead uh, to produce vaccine for COVID-19, uh, despite the fact that no approval had been given or no licensing had been given for, for, the, uh, for the vaccine as yet. And so the question that arose was, uh, were they uh, given guarantees that they would be paid for whatever they produced ahead of time, uh, whether or not uh, approval was given, or in fact, were they given assurances that approval would be given no matter the results of um, the various tests and, and, uh, and projects that are going on to, to verify the, the, uh, the vaccine? Um, well, we get a bit of a clue now, perhaps, as to what might be correct, because the government has published this uh, in the last couple of days, consultation document, changes to human medicine regulations to support the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. And I have to say, uh, in the last couple of days, Patrick, this particular document has garnered a host of uh, emails, uh, lots of people expressing concerns about this. This is published on the 20th of August. Uh, and what, so let's see what they say. Uh, COVID-19 is the biggest threat this country has faced in peacetime history, which is why the UK government is working to a scientifically-led step-by-step action plan for tackling the pandemic, taking the right measures at the right time. Um, many people may have questions about that statement. Uh, we can discuss that in the a scientifically-led part certainly is uh, up for Well, up for also debate. the biggest threat the country has faced in peacetime history. I think that's nonsense as well, as we may show later on in the program. Um, but they say that effective COVID-19 vaccines will be the best way to deal with the pandemic uh, and the preferred route to enable deployment of a new vaccine for COVID-19 is through the usual marketing authorization, brackets, product licensing process. Uh, but what they say is that a temporary authorization of the supply of an unlicensed vaccine could be given by the UK's licensing authority under Regulation 174 of the Human Medicines Regulations. Um, and uh, they go on to say that a COVID-19 vaccine would only be authorised in this way if the UK's licensing authority was satisfied that there's sufficient evidence to demonstrate the safety, quality and efficacy of the vaccine. Well, look, my first comment here is that this is clearly nonsense because if the UK licensing authority was satisfied that those uh, things had been met, then why not just license the vaccine? Exactly. Well, I'm sure a, a note from AstraZeneca or any of the big pharma companies and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation saying, don't worry, we think it's perfectly safe. That's, that should be good enough for the licensing authority, right? Uh, well, indeed. Uh, let's go on. It says, unlicensed does not mean untested. This temporary authorization process exists to address the possibility that in certain uh, situations of public health need. Uh, we'll come on to the second part of that a second in a second, because I just wanted to uh, make this quick point. Unlicensed does not mean untested, uh, but of course, people have been put in prison for uh, producing unlicensed, well, what the MHRA claimed were medic medicines, uh, and uh, are still in prison. In fact, there's a double jeopardy situation here with David Noakes, uh, because he's already served time in the UK for this, currently still in prison in France. Uh, on remand, uh, 
so anyway, it goes on to say that the license authority, licensing authority may consider that the balance of risk and benefit to patients justifies the temporary supply of the relevant vaccine pending the issue of a product license. Um, and it goes on to say the UK government wishes to clarify some important aspects of the legal regime relating to civil liability of manufacturers and suppliers in this context. Now, of course, if you're going to provide uh, unlicensed uh, medicine to anybody, uh, there is the possibility of damage. Uh, vaccine damage is already uh, a thing. It's understood there is already a compensation regime uh, in the event that you are vaccine damaged. Uh, but of course, that's in the case for vaccines which are licensed. This is a, a whole new uh, legal uh, realm that they're entering here with the idea of uh, pushing out unlicensed medications. So, so basically what you're saying is they're, they're bending the rules here. They're creating new loopholes uh, for the pharmaceutical industry to rush through uh, a vaccine. Is this what it looks like? Uh, that's absolutely what, what it looks like. Uh, but it's not just that. Uh, because the proposals, they go on to say, would expand the workforce that can administer COVID-19 and flu vaccinations so that it also includes midwives, nursing associates, operating department practitioners, paramedics, physiotherapists and pharmacists. So, uh, David, let me welcome you to the programme here following the, the summer break uh, and ask you what your thoughts are on this. Uh, do you think it's it's reasonable that uh, that this should happen in this way, and that these uh, groups of people should then be uh, given the role of uh, of administering this to all and sundry? It seems it seems extremely suspect. I've got many questions about this. Firstly, in an environment where UK wide almost no one is dying with COVID, in Scotland no one is dying with COVID. So if there's no real risk from COVID and there's some risk in the vaccine, under what risk assessment can the vaccine be rolled out, especially unlicensed? Given the fact that we've not had a risk assessment on mask wearing, are we not doing medical risk assessments anymore? Are we just, uh, what, just, just rolling things out into the population and hoping for the best? It seems odd. Then the other thing is, what exactly is unlicensed mean? If it doesn't mean untested, the only thing I can see is it means complete freedom from all liability for the vaccine manufacturers? Is there any other difference? Uh, well, this this is this is not clear. Now, of course, this is not yet uh, a thing. It is a public consultation. It's there. Or, sorry, it's not defined as a public consultation. It's defined as an an open consultation. And actually, if you if you read on towards the end of this, it does imply that they're not really interested in hearing from the general public. They want to hear from the so-called stakeholders like the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so they're saying that uh, this consultation document has laid out the proposals for changes to the Human Medicine Regulations 2012 to ensure that in particular, the UK is able to administer a COVID-19 vaccine effectively once it is available, as well as support the upscaling of flu vaccination and providing in the future for the mass distribution of treatments for pandemic diseases. So they're talking in this about it being a temporary measure. That statement suggests it's anything but a temporary measure because they're looking to the future, the future so-called pandemics and also to flu vaccination. Uh, they go on to say, although the earliest date by which a COVID-19 vaccination program could start is uncertain, preparations are underway. Therefore, there's a need to share information on how the necessary changes to medicines legislation to support the vaccination program might look. Taking into account the information in this document where you're asked to give general responses, the consultation period will run until the end of Friday the 18th of September 
2020. So they're rushing forward with the consultation. That's really not enough time for people to offer uh, a real uh, comment. Uh, and, and so it's, it's all being rushed. And the other thing is there seems to be a two-for-one deal uh, on the offing there with the government with vaccines. So they're, they're moving in the flu shot uh, to pair it with the experimental COVID-19 vaccine. Absolutely, yes. And the, let's, let's be honest about the record of the flu vaccine. It's not exactly glowing, okay? This thing has been around for decades, and it hasn't done much to lower the incidence of flu, first of all. And second of all, there's been huge problems with regards to efficacy and safety. I mean, so it's just, I mean, 10, 20 years of flu vaccines, they haven't got it right. But we're expected to believe that all of a sudden, all of a sudden, because resources have been mobilized and everybody's focused on the problem, that this time it's going to work absolutely perfectly. Mm. Um, well, look, let's move on to health passports then, because this is the other thing which uh, has uh, uh, been garnering emails uh, from people over the last couple of days. And uh, this is from Ireland, uh, the Health Passport Ireland website here, Protecting Society and Economy. National trial commences on August the 28th. And this is being presented as being something, uh, f a world first, Patrick. Um, so they produced a, a useful little uh, video guide that, uh, that helps us uh, to understand what's going on here. Uh, but they're saying that engineered in Ireland, this platform will combine the latest digital technology with highly accurate and validated COVID-19 testing solutions. Well, we're going to come on to that in a second. I love the animations, by the way, Mike, but I can't tell if they're targeted towards adults or children. This is absolutely correct. And of course, what you're seeing there is stuff which is targeted to, at adults, uh, but which is being presented as if it was targeted at children, because this is how they view us. This is how adults are viewed. We, you have to speak to adults as if they're children these days. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that's the fact. So what are they talking about here? Test results within 10 minutes. Well, perhaps the UK is saying that we're going to end up with tests in the not too distant future that can produce results within 30 minutes. You then read those results are registered with your GP. The, the results then end up on your mobile phone with the useful app that these guys uh, provide. Uh, and of course, uh, they're calling this a world first. It's not a world first at all because China is already well ahead with this. This is exactly along the Chinese model uh, of having uh, a you know green, amber, and red status. Uh, if you've got if you've got a test, you end up with uh, with green. Uh, when your test, they make the point the test doesn't last forever. The test results don't last forever. So once you're out of test status, you turn amber, and you've then got to go and get another test. And here's the thing. They're talking about it, making it easier for you to live your life with hospitality, healthcare, education, all these kinds of things. What these people are hoping is, because this isn't a government-led initiative here, this is a private organization pursuing uh, something which they hope is going to make them profit. Um, and they are uh, hoping that they can get uh, government buy-in for this, but they're also hoping they can get buy-in from other institutions like private companies, like uh, educational establishments, like, uh, you know, hospitality, hotels and this kind of stuff, uh, because otherwise it isn't going to fly. Uh, now, it, as I say, it is starting a, a, a testing, a pilot, uh, and that's going to start in a Cork nursing home. Um, and uh, But who's behind us is the question. Uh, well, it's this organization here, uh, Roku, Roku Group, and this is their website. And actually, this is their whole website. This is the website for Roku Group, what you see on screen there. Five lines of text, plus a headline and a logo. And an email address. And an email address, and that's it. So I'm 
I think that, you know, if people are concerned about this, I think people should be concerned because health passports, immunity passports, these have been talked about since the beginning of this whole thing. I think that they are on the way. But this particular one is is a company, well, what, what are they recognized for? The only thing that they are recognized for is holding a music festival in Saudi Arabia last year in, in the summer, uh, which got 40,000 people at it or, or more. Uh, so I can't imagine this is one of those companies that InQtel or one of the CIA type uh, venture capitalist firms is seed funding. I mean, they don't look very opaque, Mike, at all, do they? Uh, no. Just being that, well, I know that, uh, but you know we shouldn't we shouldn't overstate what this is about, but we shouldn't downplay it either. Health passports are a very likely uh, thing, uh, and uh, it's, a it, it's a gateway to other forms of uh, of surveillance, medical and digital surveillance. Uh, that's that's absolutely the case. So, David, what what are your thoughts? Seems to be coming. Uh, it seems to be yet another attack on liberty. Um, so we'll, we'll, I think we'll see a lot of that in today's news and some people defending it too. Uh, absolutely. Right, Patrick, uh, where does that take us then? Well, we, we, you know, the talk is about testing. That's, that's All of this is based on testing, right? So this is an interesting story. Quite frankly, I'm shocked that this even appeared in the New York Times this past weekend. The headline reads, your coronavirus test is positive. Maybe it shouldn't be. So first, the first time I have seen major mainstream media float something out, an investigation that's really questioning the, uh, you know, the accuracy of these t uh, testing regimes. Mm. The two main testing regimes we're talking about are the PCR test and the rapid antibody test. Mm. Let's look at some of the main points uh, in this New York Times article here. So they're saying the standard tests are um, diagnosing huge numbers of people who may be carrying a relatively insignificant amounts of the virus. So you can see where this is heading, and it's very interesting. Most of the people are not likely to be contagious, and identifying them may contribute to bottlenecks that prevent those who are contagious from being found in time. So they're, they're flagging up some legitimate issues that we've been talking about for a few months. So right. it's good to see that the mainstream media is catching up here on this. So the main diagnostic test for this novel coronavirus is the PCR test. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, which provides a simple yes-no answer of whether the person is infected or not. It doesn't really say how much they're infected, for instance. And that's the real nub of the issue. So let's look at the PCR test, the polymerase chain reaction test. This is the gold standard in terms of, uh, you know, finding out if anybody has the virus at, at that time. So uh, in terms of the PCR test here, this is what they're saying you know, the PCR test amplifies genetic matter from the virus in cycles. So it spins cycles to identify uh, DNA and genetic matter, RNA matter. So the fewer the cycles required, the greater amount of the virus. So it means that you only have to run a few cycles if there's a lot there. You don't have to look too hard. The machine doesn't have to do extra cycles or the viral load uh, in the sample. So the, the greater the viral load, the more likely a patient is to be contagious. But what are they finding? This number of amplification cycles needed to find the virus called the cycle threshold uh, is never included in the results sent to doctors and coronavirus patients, although it could tell them how infectious the patients are. Mm -hmm. So this would be a good indication, but it's not being used. So in the set, data sets they found from three states, Massachusetts, New York, and Nevada, 90% of the people testing positive for coronavirus barely had any virus. Okay, that's the PCR test. Mm. So that's a major point 
uh, admission here by the mainstream media. So one of the uh, high-profile doctors, you probably see him in the media a lot, this is Dr. Michael Mina here. He's from Harvard, assistant professor of epidemiology. So he's ra raised this as a valid point, saying we're using the PCR test for clinical diagnostics for public health, uh, for policy decision-making, etc. cetera. Uh, it's really irresponsible, I think, to forego the recognition that this is a quantitative issue. He's talking about viral load. Mm -hmm. So he's really bringing up a, a legitimate point here. So this leads us to the, to the main problem is case-demic. This is all about cases. So we shifted from deaths uh, to, to cases in the last few months. Why? Because there were no deaths. Mm -hmm. So the media, government, they shifted to cases. And here we see these, these are spikes, cases, uh, new mainstream media headlines coming left, right, and center here. You can see all the major brands here doing the same thing. Australia is based on this spike in cases. Again, the PCR tests are providing the, uh, the alarm, if you will, for this case-demic. And here's the New York Times, spike in U U.S. cases far outpaces testing uh, expansion. So they're saying, oh, we can't keep up with the testing because of all these cases. So that really brings us back to the initial point here, is that all of this, the provenance of this, and we've said this on this show before, you've said it, uh, some of our contributors have said it, This P the PCR test does not show if you have an active virus at all. It mm -hmm. does no indication that the records are using on the viral load. So what asymptomatic cases, do they mean anything? Uh, it's also picking up genetic material. Uh, this is interesting. <laughs> Tests with thresholds so high may detect not just live virus, but also genetic fragments and leftovers mm. from infections posing no particular risk, akin to finding a hair in a room long after the person has left the room, mm. says Dr. Mina mm. from Harvard. So is it reliable? Is the PCR test reliable? Can we base the new normal? Can we shut down schools, shut down the economy based on the PCR test? Can we roll out a vaccine based on this PCR test? No. It doesn't look like it. No. It doesn't look like it. So, uh, but, you know, he's not alone in the UK here. Let's look at what some of the other experts are saying. This is Carl Hennigan uh, from the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University. In a recent interview uh, with ITVs this morning, I believe, uh, he's saying, as we go back to schools, we can be reassured that the risk to children are incredibly low, and they are more at risk to infections like influenza. And he goes on to add here, across the board, disease is at a low level, and its impact is minimal. Okay. And lastly, he says, if you focus on the evidence right now, he's talking, about the, he's talking to the government here, you'd have a much better, clearer picture of what is actually happening and provide the public with better sound advice. So what's happening is the government seems to still be stuck on you know, their methodology from six, seven months ago. Mm -hmm. And they haven't really updated. The policies don't reflect what's happening in the data right now, with the, the situation on the ground. It's not reflected in government's rhetoric or their policies. Well, it depends what's driving what. If the, if the political rhetoric is what's driving this, if the political policy or the political desire to see lockdowns and this type of and surveillance and this type of thing is what's driving everything else, then of course you've got to pick, you've got to grab onto whatever statistics you can that are going to justify that behavior. Uh, and well, just to reinforce this, this is the weekly coronavirus disease 2019 uh, surveillance report from Public Health England, uh, published on Friday, uh, and this, this takes us up to week 35, I believe. 
Uh, and as you can see there, Patrick, uh, it's all about cases, uh, laboratory confirmed cases under Pillar 1. Now, of course, Pillar 1, that's uh, what's going on in the public sector, hospitals and so on. Uh, and Pillar 2, uh, the, the greeny blue colour there is Pillar 2, that's the private sector testing. And of course, we're seeing cases going up as the private sector testing ramps up. Um, but let's uh, work our way through this a little bit and see what we have. Uh, so here's weekly laboratory confirmed case rate per 100,000. So perhaps this gives us a slightly better picture rather than, uh, you know, absolute numbers. Uh, and as you can see, if we start looking at cases per 100,000, well, what kind of pictures does that show, Patrick? Basically, there's nothing going on. It's all quiet on the Western Front. It's not exactly a pandemic. No, it is not. Uh, and well, but where is the main problem? Well, we can see that it's in the Midlands, uh, but particularly north of England still. Uh, but this is perhaps the most important uh, graph that they've produced here. Uh, weekly overall hospital and ICU admission rates per 100,000 of new COVID positive, positive cases. Now, I don't know about you, Patrick, but that basically says to me there is nothing going on in the hospitals. Uh, if we look at the, the greeny blue line, which is hospital administration, uh, admission rate, sorry, uh, that's looking like about one, not even one uh, per 100,000 admissions at the moment in terms of positive cases. Uh, and if we look at ICU admissions, it's on zero. So there's nothing going on. And yet we continue to push forward with, uh, with local lockdowns and threats of local lockdowns. What, what, what this evidence shows clearly, Mike, here, uh, that you flagged up from Public Health England is that this is just more proof, proof positive that cases should not be newsworthy. Uh, in term, they're plastered all over the headlines and it's portraying them as something that they absolutely aren't. They're portraying them as, as if they're a threat to the general population at large and they're not. Yeah. That is scientifically proven. So when, when is the media and the government going to get off of this Case, well, the case demic merry-go-round. The, the media will get off the case demic merry-go-round, David, whenever the government stops paying them, perhaps? I guess so. And the, the government will get off it when we start laughing at them, because this, this is nonsense. Right? We, are, we are creating panic. We're masking the entire population long after the issue, such as it was, has gone. There's nothing happening. Uh, there was a, a member of the medical profession spoke out about this in a little video on her Facebook page, and uh, she was hounded and she was being threatened with losing her job. And the BBC took their five billion pound per annum budget, made her number two in the entire website of BBC News to go after this woman who said, I got a certificate for helping the NHS and, and working hard. I didn't do anything. There was nothing happening. The place was dead. She spoke the truth and the BBC go after her. So this is what we have to push back against. and. Uh, you know, concentrate on the fact that there is nothing happening. No one's dying. It's fine. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Patrick, so uh, what's going on in the United States then? Well, just a quick look here. Uh, we're looking at the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. I, 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 we found this issue with, I thought it was interesting, Mike. Uh, they put the security, they look like security <laughs> bollards out front here. I don't know if they're expecting, it looks like some social distancing arrows in the background there. Certainly, they have to be setting a good example. But the, the subject here, Mike, is, is administrative fraud uh, in, in relation to COVID deaths. And so this is a big issue. You've covered this, obviously, in the UK quite, quite extensively, especially early on uh, in the lockdown situation. 
but over in America, this is something that uh, came out in a recent document, and this was seized upon by people on social media, uh, a document on the CDC's website here. Table 3 shows the types of health conditions contributing causes mentioned in conjunction with death, deaths involving coronavirus disease and uh, COVID-19. Only 6% of the deaths of COVID-19 uh, has me mentioned uh, is the only cause. Mm. So no comorbidities, no other potential causes of death. So uh, some people on social media whittled this down to say that uh, that means that, you know, there's only sort of 10,000, mm. roughly 10,000 deaths in the U.S., not 150,000, uh, as is the number that's being proudly touted around on the various death-o-meters. Uh, that people are, are citing. So, uh, the, yes, there's a problem with the context. It is oversimplified, but the problem here is it's so political. Trump retweeted this tweet. So this is what happened here. Twitter removes claim about the CDC and COVID-19 coronavirus deaths because Trump retweeted it. And so, but it's not factually incorrect. Uh, it, it's missing some context. Maybe it's a little bit oversimplified view of it. It's not nuanced, but it's true. Uh, this does appear on a CDC document. So how one interprets that is up for debate. But uh, do social media companies have the right or, or are they, uh, do they have the mandate to go and just start erasing material that, that's factual, but they don't think it's being presented uh, in the correct, quote, context? Uh, well, if the mainstream media is uh, following this narrative because it's financially requirement for them to do so because they're getting so much advertising revenue from government at the moment. Uh, of course, uh, social media is running scared because governments around the world are threatening them with, uh, with uh, various forms of um, you know, regulation and so on, which they don't want. Um, so they're, they're also playing the government game as well, and uh, that's what's driving their censorship uh, regime, and, and that, that's absolutely what's happened here. And it is beyond any doubt, it's beyond any argument that there is uh, problems with the record keeping. Uh, it's inconsistent, it's inaccurate, and, the, and these total death numbers are the ones that governments uh, and health officials are basing lockdown policies on, yeah. basing vaccine policies on, uh, immunity passports, travel restrictions, quarantines, they're all being based on this death toll. And so it is up for debate. There are huge problems with it. There is administrative fraud. It has been proven, has been shown in many cases. So this isn't like something that should be not up for discussion. There should be a vigorous and, quite frankly, a dirty debate on this topic because it is so crucial and so central. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, very briefly, uh, I recommend people read this in detail. I'm not going to cover it in detail just now. Uh, this is the American Institute for Economy Research. Lockdowns and mask mandates do not lead to reduced COVID transmission rates or deaths, new study suggests. Uh, go and have a look at the study. Uh, but basically, the conclusion is that the data trends observed, and they describe what those trends are. Uh, indicate that non-pharmaceutical interventions such as lockdowns, closures, travel restrictions, stay-at-home orders, event bans, quarantines, curfews and mask mandates don't affect uh, virus transmission rates overall. So do go and have a look at that one. And I also just wanted to highlight this from The Telegraph, uh, that the, they, they are acknowledging that the country with the world's strictest lockdown is now the worst for excess deaths. And that seems to reinforce the idea that, in fact, most excess mortality as a result of this has come about uh, as a result of the lockdown itself, of lockdowns themselves, not of 
uh, COVID-19. And that's Peru they're talking about. That is yeah. Peru they're talking South about. South America. Yes. So they've had an absolutely incredibly tough lockdown, and yet they're not getting the results one would expect, right? Uh, and Well, it's... It, Look, we would expect it. We would expect it. But the official narrative doesn't expect it. And, of course, that uh, works hand in hand with the countries that didn't lock down and didn't see the mortality. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, David, uh, in Scotland, the highest number of care home cases, they had the highest number of care home cases in the UK. How did that happen? Well, this is what happens when you have very frail people in care home situations and you uh, see... Uh, people from hospitals who are suffering from nasty respiratory um, viral um, infections into the care homes. We cleared the hospitals. The people were placed into the care homes and and the disease went with them. Uh, and it's the scale. I want to get across the scale of this. Uh, this is a study by University of, of Stirling. Um, it found that two-thirds of Scotland's thousand care homes had suspected or confirmed cases of COVID-19. And um, this, this, uh, this equates to one bed in every 20 in the Scottish care home industry had, had COVID-19 associated with it. So that's the scale. So if 5%, over 5% of the entire care home population um, was affected by, by uh, COVID-19. So we're seeing here, we're hearing very concerning things from the NHS, and we hope to be able to report more on this later, about the policies relating to the elderly geriatric wards um, and the, uh, the fact that, that the management of this ignored medical advice on the ground from practitioners who were begging this, this policy to be changed, and it was not. They could see on the ground the harm that was being done. They could see the risks, and they were ignored on a policy level, on a, on a high management policy level. Uh, and I mean that, that happened. That happened UK wide. So, uh, bearing in mind what we saw in terms of the absolute numbers, uh, David, I'm surprised that that uh, the, the suggestion is that Scotland was the worst in the country because it really looked like England and Wales uh, were topping that. No, the the, the uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Um, has a policy that she copies uh, Boris Johnson and does what he says, but it's like VAT, it's 20% worse, 20% more pain if you live in Scotland. Okay, okay, understood. Okay, well, let's uh, briefly move on to this then, because, uh, well, Covey's a bit, uh, sorry, Coroni's a bit uh, confused here, uh, Patrick, once again, uh, because the Telegraph, uh, amongst others, but the Telegraph leading with it, uh, COVID may be able to travel up uh, drain pipes, a new study suggests, so this is a drain pipe shimmy, uh, Crony is, uh, is able to, to, to head up there. This is a study uh, based in China, apparently, but it's not just Chinese scientists. Uh, and uh, it involves a situation in January, I think it was January or February, uh, where they looked at a flat uh, in uh, China which had evidence of uh, COVID-19, or sorry, of SARS-CoV-2 on, uh, on surfaces in a bathroom in an unoccupied flat. And they're wondering how it got there. And they've decided that the way that it got there was up the uh, sewer pipe from the flat below, uh, which was occupied and have had five people in it. Um, so uh, the scientists conducted what is described as an on-site tracer simulation experiment to evaluate if the virus could spread through waste pipes. 
through tiny airborne particles. So basically, when you fl flush the loo downstairs in the bathroom upstairs, uh, you end up with uh, SARS-CoV-2 on the taps, on the sinks, on the bath, uh, and, and whatnot. Uh, and uh, David, uh, you thought this reminded you of, uh, of, a, of a movie? Well, I, I vaguely remember laughing at some horror film back in the 70s where they, they'd done piranhas attacking you and, and, and we'd kind of exhausted the, the fear that would come from that. So they, they had a follow-up film and the piranhas came up the toilet and got you. And, and it, this seems to be where we're, at, where we're now uh, sitting, that COVID's going to come up, the, come up the waste pipe and it's going to get you when you're, when you're at your most vulnerable. Be afraid. Uh, well, among his many skills, we, we had no idea what a strong swimmer uh, Caroni is. I mean, to swim against the, the sheer force, the hydraulic force of the water coming down the drain like that centrifugal force, but yet Caroni somehow, somehow manages to overcome all of that, which I think is a testament to his resilience and his athletic prowess. Uh, absolutely, but uh, not, just, not just pipes? Not just pipes. Well, what you just showed us, Mike, is really a bogus story, but it was laundered through, it came, we're all great COVID stories come from out of China is one of the great cauldrons of information about uh, un unconfirmed sources. And it just reminded me of this. Now, how many shops do we go in now? They're only accepting contactless payments here. And this was the story that kicked it all off. This was in, on March 2nd. Dirty banknotes may be spreading coronavirus. Who suggests? And now suggest being the operative word there. But most people took it as gospel because why? The World Health Organization. Why would they lie? We're in the midst, midst of uh, one of the most dangerous pandemics to ever, uh, you know, fall into the human race. So here is the picture there out of China. You can see stacks of uh, banknotes there, Remindi, Rabindis there. <laughs> Let's look a little bit closer at this story here. This was the claim. Banknotes may be spreading the new coronavirus, so people should try to use contactless payments. And boy, did they. Uh -huh. And cash became dirty at that point, hence dirty banknotes. COVID-19 may cling to the surface for a number of days, says somebody uh, at the World Health Organization. This was back in March. And this is the kicker. This is what I call the appeal to authority fallacy here. The Bank of England was drafted in for an anonymous quote on this. The Bank of England has acknowledged that banknotes can carry the bacteria or virus and urge people just to wash their hands and even sanitize the bills. And it's also convenient that the plastic bills Came out just in time. Just in time. Just that's put them through the washing machine. Pure coincidence. But what is this story? All policies are based on this. But what is it in reality? It's fake news. And by the way, the WHO have already walked that back a couple of weeks ago. I think a spokesperson. They came under criticism for that, and they totally walked it back. So it's a bogus story. But the narrative moves forward. People are scared of cash, and it accelerated the cashless society agenda. I mean, massively. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, David. Final thoughts. We're, we're missing one um, really very effective solution to this. Uh, what's what's uh, what's can be used as money and has got tremendous antibacterial um, and antiviral properties. Silver. Silver. Maybe yeah, we should yeah. go back to silver coins. I'd proper money and uh, not the Bank of England. That that would be that would be a solution to many um, things. I think so. I think so. And by the way, silver has been rallying. Uh, in recent weeks as well, by oh, the way. Okay. So it's come out of its uh, doldrums uh, that it's been suppressed in for, for a long time. So anybody out there who's owning silver... Uh, you can't get it. It's, it's very difficult. Very difficult to get now in so, physical form. Yes. 
Um, okay, now if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there. Uh, and David, uh, we'll just uh, give a, a, a quick advertisement for uh, your new YouTube channel, Northern Exposure, and you've actually posted a video. Yes, first video. We've not all been on holiday, you know, Mike. Some of us have been working hard. And um, uh, David Ellis and I did a video, a discussion of uh, Churchill's Gestapo speech from uh, 1945, which has remarkable uh, COVID um, echoes now when you, when you view it from 2020. So I'd ask people to go and have a look at that. Uh, there'll be lots of stuff uh, being posted there over the next wee while. Uh, the next one will be up uh, tomorrow, and it's a discussion uh, with a pilot um, who, who runs a 9-11 whistleblowers organisation, and we'll be looking at many things to do with 9-11, the anniversary of which is coming up shortly. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, of course, over the weekend, uh, protests going on in London, in Berlin, other places as well. Uh, but, uh, David, things haven't ended well for at least one organiser of the London event. Well, this is very, well, A, we have to, well, a wee shout out, a wee, a wee bit of love to Piers Corbyn, who's been speaking truth and getting arrested on a regular basis for his troubles. And I would point out, this is an entirely peaceful man um, who his only crime is to say things and think things that he's not allowed to say. So 21st century Britain, you think the wrong thing, you express this in a peaceful manner, you end up being arrested multiple times with the police. This is a problem. So uh, he's now been uh, fined £10,000 for his uh, role in organising this anti-lockdown rally. But the description's even stranger. It says the 73-year-old, 73-year-old, I'll point out, we're doing this 73-year-old, told The Guardian, after the rally had finished, I was saying goodbye to people and just looking around thinking I better go now, when the police just grabbed me from behind. I was not expecting it at all. They frog marched me, didn't handcuff me, and told me they were arresting me for contravening the coronavirus regulations for organising a gathering of more than 30 people, as if there's not been plenty of those about. Corbyn was uh, held for 10 hours by the police and told officers that he and other organisers had filled out all the necessary risk assessments and spent two weeks negotiating with Scotland Yard over the event. He said he planned to challenge a fixed penalty notice in court. So. Just because you reach agreement with the state doesn't mean the state will not then turn on you and um, throw you in jail for 10 hours when you're 73 while they presumably figure out what they're going to charge him with. And they gave him this fixed penalty notice. I mean, I would, I would like to see a, a, a very um, forensic examination of the process the Met went through here. It, it, a lot of it has the feeling of illegality to me and uh, unlawfulness. And it'd be interesting to see what uh, a good QC would make of it. Um, well, aside from anything else, uh, as you say, Piers Corbyn has been doing some fantastic uh, making some fantastic efforts over the last several months to, to raise awareness and, and get people uh, organised and so on. But for this event, he wasn't the only person that was that could be perceived as an organiser, and yet the others don't seem to have been treated in the same way. No, he's clearly been singled out for attention because he's saying the wrong things too often, and he's got some um, profile, and they're looking to make a, an example of him. That's what totalitarian regimes do. Um, but well, the, 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 good, the good news, of course, is tens of thousands of people turned out in Trafalgar Square 
to um, say that they wished to be free and they did no longer they no longer wanted to be held prisoner by their own governments. So uh, this is a, a sign for hope, and we must give a little shout out to to one lady who was dressed in a very fine way, uh, with some UK column news advertising on her hat. So whoever you are, thank you very much for that. Uh, absolutely. I, th I think a few more people than thirty showed up, right? Uh, oh yes, absolutely. Thirty thousand, uh, roughly. Uh, no, I don't know what the numbers were, but it was significantly more than thirty. Uh, but perhaps there weren't significantly more than thirty, David. Uh, turned out for the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protest at, at the weekend as well. Yes, BLM, right, they, they, they were trying to reproduce the Million Man March, but of course you can't have a Million Man March anymore because that's bad, that's that's uh, misogynist. So it's a Million People March. Uh, but they started off, there was a few dozens, and they maybe got two or three hundred by the time they got to Hyde Park. So are we seeing, are we seeing the uh, BLM process really peter out? I thought the pictures, though, were very interesting. Here we see, on the left hand here, we see um, two people who I would have to say would, you would call in Scotland Peely Wally, as in, as in they're pale, um, holding up some signs. One, calling the police uh, bacon, so you're, you're demonising human beings, you're painting human beings as, as animals. That's always a dangerous sign. And the other gentleman's educate your racist grandparents. So you see the hatred for the elderly being brought out here. Yeah. Um, and you see the, the you need re-education. And the right hand is Black Lives Matter more than white comfort. So again, making everything about race, charging everything with racial overtones, splitting people from one another. It's entirely negative. We know it's Marxist. We know it hates the family. Uh, and we know it's supported by the BBC, F1, the Premier League, and um, English English cricket. Uh, well, the numbers uh, the, the numbers that were in London uh, were impressive. Did you want to? Well, well, I spoke to some of the people that attended that, and they did remark when they passed by the the Black Lives Matter uh, co-protest. I don't know what to call it. it. Looks like they tried to piggyback yeah. on top of the lockdown protest. They said the vibe was very very off-putting. Um, they were very standoffish with the anti-lockdown protesters. And I guess only 300 of them showed up, so it's not quite a million for BLM. But they can amplify those numbers if they change their gender pronouns to they and us. You might be able to get a, sort of a tenfold amplification on that 300. So really, I think 30,000 Black Lives Matter uh, protesters were there, not 300. Right, okay, so okay. So there's much more, actually. Okay, okay, well, fair enough. Right. Let's let's move back to uh, COVID-19 protests, however, and, of course, in Germany. Uh, the last time there was a, a, a protest uh, in Germany, uh, well, many people suggesting 500, 800,000, uh, perhaps a million people turned out. Uh, the BBC said 20,000. Strangely enough, as I was driving back from uh, Northern Ireland on, uh, on Saturday, uh, the BBC said that the, the Berlin protest this past Saturday uh, was 20,000. That's just amazing to me that they seem to be exactly the same number of people. Uh, but, well, in fact, there were. So let's just have a look at a couple of uh, images here. And thanks very much uh, to Piers Robinson for these uh, images. Uh, so uh, we can see that there's significantly more than uh, 20,000 people here. Because if you look down the street, uh, actually, the numbers just, well, there you go. That's basically what it was looking like. Uh, that's more than 20,000 people, Patrick. Yeah, and they were just saying thousands uh, in The Guardian, uh, the initial report. So thousands came to see 
uh, speeches and yes. speakers in Berlin. So right. significantly more than thousands there. Uh, but uh, what, what were these people? Were they actually ordinary men and women and children, or were they right-wing? Uh, well, in fact, uh, Berlin virus protests show how far-right seizing on show far-right seizing on restrictions fatigue. So this is Financial Times. So, uh, David, uh, as far as the UK, the London protests were concerned, that was a bunch of conspiracy theorists led by David Icke. Uh, in Germany, it's, uh, it's far-right protesters. Uh, it, it really, the mainstream media just, just doesn't get any better, does it? Well, it was far right. Uh, it was far right fascists in the in uh, London as well, according to many in the mainstream media, because in a in a crowd of thirty or forty thousand, they they found they found one guy uh, with a with a flag. Um, we don't know who the guy was. We don't know why he was there, but he had a, a flag of the British Union of Fascists, and of course that means that the whole thing is far right. It's pathetic. This is what they do. I mean, anyone can go along to the meeting, so you don't even know who the who the, who the guy is. Um, they get one or two people out of crowds of tens of thousands. They have some sort of link, factual or staged, we don't know, to some sort of uh, Nazi or fascist organisation. And I question whether even uh, whether they're far right or far left. But anyway, an extreme organisation, a totalitarian organisation. And then they try to paint all these freedom-loving people of all creeds, colours, descriptions, political views, um, beliefs, ages, you name it, the most diverse crowd you'll ever see as as literally Hitler. It's pathetic. This is what the this is all the mainstream now have to um to uh, try to suppress the dissent. It, they just have to lie about it. They can't do anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Patrick, uh, sticking with Berlin for a second, uh uh, RFK Jr. was speaking. Yeah, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, he's the son of the late uh, Robert F. Kennedy, who was assassinated, uh, and the nephew of John F. Kennedy, JFK. So he was probably the headline speaker. He came over from America, delivered a, a stunning address. I think it was about 13 minutes long in its totality. And uh, there's been some, you know, good videos of this put up. By we we took the video from uh, uh, Korkopf, uh, a German uh, YouTube channel. Uh, an Instagram uh, channel as well. We use so it. so if we, if we, if you want to go and see the full video, uh, that's where you want to go. But uh, let's just look at a, at a minute or so of this. Oh. Governments love pandemics. They love pandemics for the same reason they love war. And they love sie aus den gleichen Gründen wie sie den Krieg lieben. Because it gives them the ability to impose controls on the population that the population would otherwise never accept. The institutions and mechanisms for orchestrating and imposing obedience. That's an institution and mechanism that making it up as they go along. They're inventing numbers. They don't, they cannot tell you what the case fatality rate for COVID is. That's basic. They cannot give us a PCR test that actually works. They don't have, they have to change the definition of COVID on the death certificates constantly to make it look more and more dangerous. The one thing that they're good at 
is pumping up fear. Did not disappoint. No. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., that was a, a stunning Stunning speech, one of the highlights of the weekend. Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, moving on then, David, uh, what's going on in uh, the southern hemisphere uh, in Australia? Uh, this is a very, uh, well, we go to Victoria. Victoria, along with New Zealand and one or two other places, is uh, being very much the centre of oppression uh, in, in this particular crisis. Um, and we go here, firstly, to go after the guns. So this is uh, the Licensing and Regulation Division of Victoria Police. And uh, a note that went out for them, warning gun owners, should a license holder blatantly and deliberately breach the Chief Health Officer's restrictions, that's the COVID restrictions, your license can be suspended, cancelled, or maybe subject to a reprimand which could harm future licensing. So don't think you're going to have any sort of liberty based on being an armed populist. No, if you don't comply, we'll come after your guns first. And I thought, I thought from that, well, what does the uh, Victoria Police website look like? Here's the contact us page, the, the main page of the website. And uh, lo and behold, uh, it's all about COVID. So the, the Victoria Police are only really now dealing with COVID. State of emergency was declared March 16 to combat COVID-19. If you want to report a suspected breach of public health restrictions, such as isolation, mask gathering, or business breaches, uh, and they then give a, a, a rat hotline for for you to rat on your neighbours. So that's a nice piece of totalitarian uh, furniture uh, to help things go along. And of course, a lot of us have seen um, on, a, on YouTube and on Twitter uh, a woman being arrested very violently by uh, by the police in Victoria um, for not wearing a mask. And she was complaining that, that they were choking her. Well, this is the Guardian uh, reporting uh, back earlier in August that she's now been charged, but she's not been charged with not wearing a mask. No, she was exempt. She had a medical exemption from wearing a mask. She tried to tell the police officer that. The police officer grabbed her by the throat and threw her to the ground. Um, she tried to resist, and uh, would you believe that she's now been charged with uh, resisting arrest and assault on police? So that's uh, that's Victoria. Someone was commenting that uh, Australia is returning to being a prison colony. Um, harsh, but unfortunately, it would appear true. We're all we're all Palestinians now in uh, the state <laughs> of Victoria. Unfortunately, yeah, pretty shocking state of affairs. It is ground zero. Uh, for sort of the totalitarian, uh, ultimate, uh, all, all bells and whistles globalist uh, lo lockdown and quarantining. Australia and New Zealand are absolutely running point uh, on seeing how far the government can go. It goes really far in Australia, by the way. Yes. They have a policy called no jab, no pay, which means it's, it's a vaccine policy that's been in place. In fact, current Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, pioneered it. Uh, I think before he became even prime minister, but you don't get benefits uh, to be parents or various benefits unless you get whatever the mandated vaccine is at mm -hmm. that time. So between that and the amount of money that they're paying people not to work, no wonder that they're getting compliance. Okay, well, look, uh, let's move back to the United States then. Uh, and, uh, well, this is the mail, David. Uh, revealed suspect 48 in fatal shooting of Patriot Prayer supporter is a dad of two who describes themselves 
himself as 100% Antifa uh, and took a loaded gun to a Portland protest earlier this year. So this is, a, this is the continuing process of trying to spark civil war in America, I think. Um, the latest example, which you can see very shocking footage on, on YouTube and elsewhere, um, the Antifa, who are a terrorist organization, um, Antifa supporters were roaming around and there was a whole, a whole series of Trump supporters came to the town in a, in a large convoy of vehicles. They identified one of the Trump supporters who'd got isolated from the rest. And the discussion was, here's one, here's a Trumper. And the chap says, who, him? Yeah, him. And then, then the, the, the Trump supporter was shot in the back. Right? It was an execution based on his political beliefs. And some sort of line has been crossed when that happens. Now, what did the, um, the, the, the mayor of, of Portland say about this? What did he, how did he um, address the issue? Um, he, blamed, he blamed Donald Trump. He said, do you seriously wonder, Mr. President, why this is the first time in decades that America has seen this level of violence? It is you who have created the hate and the division. So you see here the, the incredible reversal of the truth. People go out with guns because they hate Donald Trump. And they murder a man because they hate Donald Trump. And they hate their fellow man because they don't agree with them. And whose who's, who's fault is it? Well, it's Donald Trump's fault for being Donald Trump. The, the, the degree of programming, of cult-like adherence, and of violent um, and murderous intent is quite breathtaking. Um, this this doesn't go well unless it gets stamped out quite quickly. Um, there's a lot of people who are trying to destabilize America, and I think this is the chosen route. Uh, Ted Wheeler, by the way, was out with the protesters early on in this latest wave, and you know, c called them peaceful protesters. Uh, this is just before they were uh, setting fire to. Uh, government buildings, the Justice Center in Portland. So federal buildings under attack from uh, rabid mobs who are also arsonists, and it's violent, and they're running checkpoints. Mm. And so this is the classic Leninist uh, technique mm. by Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, which is accuse your <laughs> opponents of doing exactly what you're doing. Mm. Uh, so the, it's amazing how they're managing this election year to blame everything uh, on Trump, even when they themselves are doing it from lockdowns to, to protests, mm -hmm. so I don't think Donald Trump particularly asked them to come out and uh, burn Portland to the ground, but it's not the first time, of course, they've done it before. David. Yeah. But, uh, Patrick, uh, you're, you're behind the times here. Uh, CNN defined uh, people going out and torching federal buildings as uh, fiery but largely peaceful protests. So those, that's the phrase you've got to remember. Yeah, excitable. <laughs> Excitable protesters. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, yeah, okay, David, uh, briefly, very briefly, please. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon should not limit Scotland's economic options. Oh, right. This is just a quick a quick note that The Guardian is, is trying to goad Nicola Sturgeon into following modern monetary theory by saying she's too conservative, right? So they're going to the woman who's, who, who, who barks the, the word Tories like, like a Highland coo with a cough. Uh, every, every week in Parliament, and they're saying, oh, you're too conservative, you need to just print money, and modern monetary theory will save you. So anyone who thinks that that's um, 
for anyone who wants to hear the discussion on how crazy that actually is, should go to the UK column, follow Mike, uh, Mike's uh, discussion with me uh, on the, the series Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. We're about to launch episode six. There's more to follow because there's much um, uh, insanity in the world of, of money and finance and economics to report on. Uh, okay, now look, we're right out of time, David, so just be very, very brief on this, if you could. Uh, what's going on in Scotland with respect to uh, planning? This is, a, this is a quick call for help. So this is a, a, an application to Highland Council. There's two applications here, so note the numbers. It's 20 slash 02471 in this case, and, and it's uh, Bailey Oskeen Foyers Inverness. This is a Gaelic version, perhaps correct, perhaps archaic, perhaps made up, I'm not quite sure yet, of Boleskine House. This is Alistair Crowley's house that has been bought by a Satanist organisation and they are putting a planning application in to turn it into uh, essentially a, a, a point of pilgrimage for Satanists. So that's what's going to be coming to a very quiet little Highland community. So um, there's, because of this subterfuge, there's only today and tomorrow left to object. So I'd ask people to go on to the, the Highland Council website, find this and it's uh, the second um, the, the second application is number 20 slash 02817, right? Which is the listed building consent equivalent of that. So they've, they've, they've put these two applications in and uh, please uh, raise objections. Now, reasons for objections have to be valid under planning law. I'm suggesting the following are and are appropriate in this case. Um, firstly, the change of name has been made to conceal the nature of the development uh, and thwart the transparent democratic process um, that should be applied with planning applications. Secondly, the narrow roads on the south side of Loch Ness, if anyone's ever been there, they'll know, are unsuitable for the proposed development. Third, the historic building has been, putting up, has been put at risk. They're actually selling pieces of it on eBay to fund the process, would you believe? Um, uh, there is also uh, insufficient research has been done on the wildlife impact, which is very substantial. And most importantly, in my view, this is making the site a place of pilgrimage for Satanists and other followers of Alistair Crowley. They will present a nuisance to the local community and a blight on the district. So please go onto the Highland Council website today or tomorrow and raise, raise an objection to these developments uh, so that we make sure that there is proper scrutiny of this of this application and it doesn't get put through on a nod and a wink and held and, and done by delegated powers okay brilliant thank you very much david and hope uh, lots of people will support that um thank you patrick for joining us we've got to leave it there for today uh and uh, thank you for joining us we'll be back at the same time uh, on wednesday as usual 1 p.m uh, we hope to see you then and uh, i hope everybody had a good break while we were away it's great to be back see you wednesday bye-bye